All right, welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast. Today with Jim Adler, the founding managing director and board member at Toyota AI Ventures. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I'm actually quite excited that we're doing this today. Uh, you guys are doing a lot of interesting things, and we've already had a had a talk, you know, before the actual recording. So I've got to know a little bit about you and then like things that you've done before. So um, actually really excited about this today. And, and as usual, you know, kind of as the first thing uh, that we are always doing on the show, obviously, to kind of, you know, um, give you the stage to, um, yeah, kind of give, give us the background here on where you're coming from, what were like the, you know, the different stages in your professional life, and how you basically ended up at, uh, you know, Toyota and uh, doing Toyota AI Ventures. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I'll, st I'll start with sound uh, of the abbreviated career path. Uh, it, it's, it hasn't been predictable. Uh, I started my career as an electrical engineer. Uh, that's my training. Uh, first job out of college was launching rockets for what's now Lockheed Martin. So uh, Atlas Centaur, Titan Centaur, uh, uh, boosters in upper stages. I did a, some early work on Space Station Freedom. Uh, incredible amount of fun uh, and uh, just a dream job. Uh, out of out of school, um, but I did have this sort of entrepreneurial itch uh, I needed to scratch, and so after about a half dozen years or so, uh, turned my attention to uh, startups and and uh, started a consulting company with some colleagues. Uh, then uh, started uh, in this season uh, is appropriate uh, an online voting company that was focused on. Uh, auditable and secret ballot uh, elections. Uh, raised a bunch of venture capital through that uh, effort. Uh, ran it for about nine years. Uh, then joined a company called Intellius, which was a background check people search company. Uh, they purchased uh, a product that came out of the voting company, uh, identity theft protection product. I came over with that acquisition and really found myself in, in, in the world of privacy and data. Uh, I was hired to uh, run the uh, data science team and also uh, was their first chief privacy officer. So I was kind of an odd duck. I, I did a bunch of uh, podcasts or blogs. In those days, it was blogs on the accidental chief privacy officer since I fell into that. Uh, Stayed at that company for about five years, then joined a, a scale-up data analytics startup uh, that was backed by Sequoia Capital called Metanotics, founded by a Googler and a Facebooker. We sold that to Microsoft in 2015. And then I uh, uh, sort of continued the, the pattern of doing a startup and then resting, a startup and then resting. And so my rest was uh, supposed to be at Toyota, uh, where I was hired in to uh, build up a uh, Toyota Research Institute's cloud and data team, which I did for about a year. Uh, but then when Toyota Research Institute was founded, uh, they had this anticipation of doing some uh, investing. And there was a little kitty of money to do that. And uh, uh, I had visited a few uh, Silicon Valley companies as part of that investment. And I really uh, recognized that there, there wasn't a, a well-detailed structure, uh, mission, uh, and, and execution plan for these kinds of investments. And having raised probably $35 million in my career uh, before joining Toyota, I had some very hard and specific feelings about how to do venture capital, and specifically corporate venture capital, because I had taken money from Cisco and Hewlett-Packard and others in previous companies. So... I put together a sort of manifesto of what I thought the do's and don'ts were of corporate VC. And uh, uh, we, I was asked to pull together and, and, and propose it to Japanese executives, which uh, I did. And in 2017, July, we launched the fund. It was a $100 million fund focused on early stage investing in artificial intelligence, uh, autonomy, uh, mobility, robotics, data and cloud technologies. And uh, two years later, we announced our second $100 million, rough, roughly $100 million fund. So we have 205 million under management. Uh, 
36 companies in the portfolio to date. Uh, we do seed and series A investing really with the mission to discover what might be next for Toyota. Uh, Toyota is a very large, venerable uh, uh, company, and but disruption is hitting every industry. And so our job is to discover what might be next. Yeah, I guess it's a, that's a great thing to do. But um, I mean, you know, what's interesting is that you've, you've been in, um, you know, in various positions where you were responsible in building up data, data teams and, and really have always been in, involved in these type of uh, initiatives. And, you know, how, how has that basically kind of, you know, affected or kind of maybe even played out for you in a positive way to actually, you know, start or kind of do Toyota AI ventures? Well, I think, I think that uh, any, uh, for any venture capital effort is really focused on, especially early stage, certainly, uh, on what might be next, right? I, 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 the way I like to think about it, uh, uh, venture capital is, is, is like a magnifier uh, into the future, right? Early stage is like a telescope, later stage is like a magnifying glass, very late stage, like a microscope. Uh, and if you're going to look outward, it's helpful to have it have folks that have been on the outside, have been involved in, in disruptive uh, technologies and, and uh, innovative business models. And so, I mean, I my four year anniversary was last May in Toyota. So compared to colleagues around Toyota, I'm a, I'm a little baby. Uh, many have been at Toyota decades. And so I, I think I, I bring a, a unique perspective and, and my team is, is also uh, by and large, uh, uh, not uh, Toyota corporate folks. We do have uh, certain folks that are, uh, but it's a great mix uh, and a diverse team that is really on this semi-permeable membrane between the outside world uh, of startups, innovation, disruption, and uh, the inside of, of Toyota, which is uh, the biggest car maker in the world. Yeah, and I think, you know, ultimately, when we've talked about this as well, you know, kind of prior to the podcast and in, in, in regards to, you know, how that basically, you know, influenced your way of setting up, you know, the fund and also kind of, you know, in regards to setting up a strategy for Toyota AI Ventures. And um, I, I really... I, I really think that it is interesting in regards to, you know, you mentioned it as well, that you're not just looking, you know, just because we're, you know, the Toyota AI ventures doesn't mean that first of all, we're just looking at mobility companies and we're just looking at AI ventures, even though maybe that isn't our name. So kind of, you know, let's go a little bit more into, you know, into exactly what are the things that you're looking for? Right. I mean, there's so much there's and there's there's so many startups, there's so many hotspots. And we talked about this well. Right. How do you make sure that if you're, let's say, really sourcing globally or you're really looking, let's say, at the at the hotspots um, of, 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 let's say, or the hubs, the startup hubs. Right. How are you going about this? Like, what is the strategy in regards to you addressing this? Yeah, uh, I think. Well, first, uh, let's start with the mission, we started with the mission uh, of discovering what's next. And then we, and then I think structured wise, structure wise, we are structured very much like a, a corporate, uh, I'm sorry, like an institutional venture capital fund. Uh, so we're a general partner, limited partner structure. Uh, we have similar financial incentives as a, a institutional VC. We're built for speed. Uh, we have a very small board. And the idea is to attract the best uh, startup teams on the planet. Uh, Certainly uh, a goal we can never really uh, attain, uh, but uh, uh, we have to try. And so the, the first job is really to uh, understand who your customer is. When you're a venture capital fund, uh, it's important to understand who the customer is. And for us, the customer is the startup. Uh, sure, our, our limited partner is the corporation, but fundamentally we need to serve the startup, our startup customer. And, and why is that important? Uh, well, if, if we are going to answer your question uh, around uh, tapping into the pools of disruption around the planet, uh, we need to have a reputation and 
deliver on that re reputation for uh, uh, treating startups uh, with the respect they deserve, of course. But what does that mean specifically? It means keeping deals, deal terms very clean. It means operating on their time constant, not ours, uh, which is always faster. Uh, I always like to say the only superpower a startup has is speed and they don't need their corporate VC slowing them down. Uh, so what that does is it, it gives us uh, access to some of the best co-investors uh, around the world and, and certainly uh, uh, some of the best startup teams around the world. So that's the opportunity, not just to hunt for the best uh, deals, but also have them come to us. Uh, and then you can start to say, okay, with a, then, then you get into more of an intellectual exercise after you've dealt with the sort of the wetware of, of culture and reputation into, okay, what industries uh, and sectors are uh, uh, poised for uh, disruptive productivity growth. And we could talk about that. Uh, happy to kind of dive into to some of those areas, but that's sort of the framing with which we approach the problem. Right. But so if you're saying like, you know, not, not that we're just like, you know, on the hunt, but that, you know, startups are as well coming to us, right. Or founders are coming to us. So, you know, ultimately what, what you know, why then, you know, I, as a founder, you know, why, why should I, why should I come to you? You know, what, what is, what is kind of, you know, either maybe the difference, but also ultimately the benefit, you know, for me to, to, to go to a, you know, to, to, to go to a corporate VC then ultimately. Yeah. I, I think that corporate venture capital, uh, often, uh, uh, they are their own worst enemy. Uh, they, uh, corporate VC can offer a tremendous, uh, uh, amount of, of help to a startup. I mean, Toyota's got 370,000 employees, uh, uh, divisions all over the world, deep supply chain uh, partnership network, uh, great understanding of design and safety and reliability and manufacturing, uh, 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 top 10 consumer brand, finance distribution. You know, there's a tremendous amount of capabilities that uh, a startup could take advantage of uh, uh, having Toyota on their cap table. Uh, the challenge always is, is that corporates don't look at it that way. They don't understand how to deliver that, that value to the startup. And so, like I said, before the close of an investment, we, act, we look very similar to an institutional VC. Uh, we don't uh, have business units uh, uh, engaged directly in our decision-making process. Uh, uh, they may, we, we may tap them for due diligence or, or better understanding of, of an opportunity or market, but we want to move quickly. After the close, however, we have a portfolio support team and their only job is to do this impedance matching between the startup's maturity and a Toyota business unit's receptivity to uh, a startup, uh, startup's capabilities. And that has worked out amazingly well. Uh, we have the majority of our startups are engaged in Toyota, uh, with Toyota in, in, in one way, shape or form. Uh, the, the, I think the, the best example is probably Jovi Aviation, uh, uh, an air taxi company that, that we invest, Toyota AI Ventures invested in, in, in the summer of 2017. Toyota Motor Corp uh, led their $600 million uh, financing in January. Uh, and uh, and fought, basically followed our investment there, and and so uh, that was a, a great example of getting the deal done quickly. We had to move very quickly. It was right after the Series A had closed, so we were moving very quickly to get into that deal. Uh, once we made that investment, then we were focusing on figuring out how Toyota could help Joby. And so I come from this long line of doctors, right? My dad was a doctor. My my. Uh, my grandfather was a doctor. My grandfather's brother was a doctor. I was supposed to be a doctor. And so I'm in, steeped in, in a, a lot of uh, philosophy around medicine. And one is, of course, the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. And uh, I really feel like the first thing corporate venture capitalists should do is no harm to the startups they invest in. <laughs> Once you can understand that uh, and calibrate uh, your activity to what they need and resist the 
temptation to bear hug them or let the business unit uh, drive them in ways that are unnatural, uh, you could really uh, help uh, accelerate uh, the startup's growth. I mean, that, that leaves a lot of, uh, let's say, responsibility in regards to, you know, your team to really, you know, look for things that are best for the, for, for the uh, portfolio company, right? So even though, you know, that you're not just, you know, acting as, you know, Toyota, but you're really, let's say, you know, taking care that, you know, that you're looking for the best way to engage with, let's say, the different business or with the business unit in general. And even and, and if it's not the best way, you know, then not to do it, right? That's right. And, and, and I think this is why uh, I've been a big proponent of putting financial return above strategic return. And I think uh, CVCs often get that backwards. They think, they think well, if, if we can't get the financial return or it doesn't matter because the company's, the corporation is so big that any venture capital return is a rounding error and it doesn't matter, uh, at least we'll get the strategic return out of the investment. And that's exactly the wrong way to look at it, in my opinion. Uh, you want to focus on financial uh, success of the startup for a couple reasons. One is it's the right thing to do. Uh, startups are uh, uh, fragile. Uh, they're fast and they have other strengths, but they're fragile. Uh, but also, more importantly for the corporation, a financially strong and successful startup makes a much better partner. Uh, there are many groups within Toyota that would not work with a snot-nosed startup that uh, is not mature enough and reliable enough uh, to deliver uh, the kind of uh, performance and robustness that uh, some Toyota groups require. Obviously, when you're in the car business, uh, safety and reliability are our job. Our jobs one and two. Uh, always safety first, but uh, robustness, maintainability is, is so important. And so, uh, a very weak startup would not uh, be relied upon by uh, a Toyota business unit uh, as a good partner. So I think if you kind of uh, resist the temptation to focus just on the corporation needs and focus initially, especially at the early stage, on what the startup needs, they'll end up being better corporate partners anyway. And I think that's an important distinction. And my team, uh, and our portfolio support team is really focused on that. They're fo I have startups all the time that say, um, you know, Jim, um, you know, this automotive industry is just not one that we want to pursue. I know that we talked about it before you invested. And, but I think this other industry, this other market is a better one to, uh, for our, our, our initial go to market. And they always say that a little sheepishly because we're Toyota. And I said, look, go make rain, <laughs> go make it rain, right? Uh, in, in any market you can. Toyota and the automotive business will be here. Go be, go make yourself financially strong. Go win market share. Go get your unit economics figured out. Uh, it doesn't have to be in the automotive business. Once you're a strong startup, uh, the automotive market will be here and Toyota will be here. Take yeah. care of, uh, there's a great uh, line from uh, Rick Mears, a race car driver. He said, to finish first, you must first finish. And the startup's job is to first finish. <laughs> first finish the race. Uh, and, and then once you've got that figured out, then you could figure out how to finish first. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I think maybe, you know, another aspect that you just mentioned, you know, especially when it comes to like uh, having such a large corporate, let's say, you know, kind of, as a customer, right? And for example, safety and robustness, if you mentioned those are, let's say, you know, major criteria, it's not just safety and robustness, right? It, it, you need to mention that it's safety and robustness on scale, right? Yeah. So really on scale and not just like, you know, in a, in a, um, in a smaller setting or so, right? You need, to be, you need to be mature enough for that as well. And let's say also, you know, experienced enough in order to, you know, actually be able to, to perform at that level. That's right. And it's just not uh, even uh, performing at scale, as you said, in one dimension. It's, it's uh, exercising the muscles of the entire organization, uh, uh, not just uh, research or engineering or product, uh, but also manufacturing operations, support, uh, legal finance, the, the whole uh, 
uh, body corporate that is uh, important to mature, uh, to be a reliable uh, partner. And, 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 and every startup is on a trajectory uh, of that maturity. And certain business units, even within Toyota, are more uh, open to engaging with a startup early in that maturation life cycle. And some uh, are not comfortable until engaging later in that maturation cycle. So our portfolio support team's job is to sort of figure out where they are on that, on that curve, on that life cycle curve, and then do that matchmaking between business units and, and, and startups. Right. So let's maybe take a, talk about some uh, some some positive examples, you know, uh, our support portfolio companies, some success stories that you can share. Maybe. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mentioned Joby. Um, uh, they are doing an uh, amazing, amazing job uh, bringing, uh, as Joe Ben Beavert, the the CEO, likes to say, uh, saving a billion people an hour a day uh, commuting. Uh, uh, with an air taxi service that they're building that's uh, uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing. Uh, amazing vehicle uh, uh, that there's a bunch of press uh, recently on that company. Uh, and Toyota, uh, as I said, led their round. And that, that's a great example. May Mobility is, a, is another one where Toyota led their last round. Toyota Motor Corp led their last round where we invested earlier. Uh, and that's an uh, autonomous uh, shuttle uh, that runs around cities uh, on fixed routes and lower speeds, but autonomously. Uh, and so that uh, is also, I think, a, an important disruptive technology of, of how autonomy is going to actually uh, be introduced into the market. It's not going to be a, a step change. It's going to be this ramp uh, of uh, uh, starting at lower speeds, simple operating domains, and then uh, the speeds will increase, the operating domains will get more complex, and we'll see more and more autonomy uh, on the streets. And I think May Mobility is taking a, a really interesting uh, approach uh, to that. Uh, another one that, that we really like uh, is Revel uh, Mopeds. Uh, this is a mobility, micro-mobility company uh, that's just, uh, just knocking it out of the park, uh, coming out of COVID. It turns out that one of the sectors we think is is really seeing an uptick uh, in this uh, in this new normal is personally operated mobility, uh, where uh, and we've seen Toyota, you know, we've seen uh, an uptick certainly in car sales, but we think personally operated mobility, especially the efficiency that uh, mopeds bring to the roads, uh, is very compelling and. Uh, there's hundreds of millions of, of scooters, uh, mopeds, you know, street scooters and mopeds, not kick scooters, but street scooters and mopeds sold every year around the world. Uh, and we think that an electric version that uh, provides uh, a, you know, by the use, by the trip uh, mode is incredibly uh, valuable. And, and Revel is just coming out of, uh, of the first COVID uh, era period, uh, just seeing a huge revenue uh, uh, increases and, and starting to move into more cities and, and, and just growing like a weed. So we're really, really excited about what they're doing. Uh, so uh, another one a little more closer to the technology is Apex AI, which is uh, a robot uh, operating system. Ross uh, has been a favorite of uh, the academic robotics community uh, for for very long time, uh, but it really hasn't been uh, uh, enterprise ready. And Apex is sort of hardening ROS uh, and uh, making it uh, ready, certainly for uh, the for the enterprise market, but also for the automotive market. And that allows this huge uh, population of ROS engineers to be able to bring ROS into uh, into the, the the machines we use every day, uh, so that's that's really exciting, and we're we're really happy uh, about how, how they're doing and how they're growing. Um, one other sector that I think just kind of on you know COVID is always top of mind, but uh, when we talk about headwinds and tailwinds, we think that there is a tailwind uh, in in supply chains and manufacturing. Uh, I, I think um, 
Warren Buffett has you know the, the, the great quote that says, you know who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And I think the tide, you know, COVID has taken the tide out. And we see that focusing on single supply chains, um, typically in China, but uh, also in other places around the world, uh, have really uh, sacrificed uh, resiliency for efficiency. So even though it's very efficient to have a single supply chain, single manufacturer, uh, there, that comes at a price and the price is resiliency. Uh, and uh, I think what you'll see is uh, you're gonna to start to see more manufacturing lines, more supply chains being diversified around the world. Uh, we, we made an investment in Drishti, which is video analytics for manufacturing lines. So you can actually uh, understand how your manufacturing lines are operating from anywhere in the world. Uh, and for, for safety and consistency and quality, uh, it really gives, uh, uh, provides a, a huge step change in the tool set that manufacturers have. So we're really excited uh, about that, that kind of opportunity as well. And you see robotics uh, moving into manufacturing lines and of course, package delivery and logistics. We have a company called BoxBot that's you know, steeped in, in, in logistics and with package deliveries uh, accelerating. You know, that's another one that, that we think is we're really excited about too. You, you know, I can go on and on, <laughs> but I'll stop. You know, the funny thing is uh, what you just mentioned in regards to, you know, the, the kind of the, the risk of, you know, really going in for efficiency and really, let's say, being dependent on a single supplier and really, let's say, building up on, on a single stream, basically. You know, I guess, you know, if, if we kind of relate here to, um, there's this great book, um, Black Swan from uh, Nassim Taleb, where sure. the um, unpredictable events, the, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, with kind of COVID, you know, being being this this black swan, ultimately something that you cannot really predict, right? It just starts and then it's there, you know, and then mm -hmm. it, it's it's hard to react on on any level, and there's so many variables, so many unknowns, you know, and then, yeah. then basically the, the the logical thing is, you know, companies really, you know, seeing where they are where they are not really, you know resilient enough or what, why you know where they're not able or they're seeing basically the the, the, the pain points that you know that that, um, that are now being triggered by basically this black swan event and then basically everything goes i ultimately this will result in, in in the following so that people or the company say okay now we need to distribute our things you know, so that we're not really dependent on on you know one single source but then over time once let's say you know things is going better and, you know, there's an upswing again, you know, and, and basically time being, um, being the responsible um, thing that, that, you know, that kind of tends, tends people uh, or where people tend to forget things or forget the bad, you know, it will again come back to the, okay, so how can we get more efficient? How can we get better? And then it will ultimately lead again to, you know, saying, okay, right. you know what, let's do the single supplier thing. Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned uh, Nassim Taleb, who, you know, one of my favorites uh, uh, thinkers uh, uh, around this. And you mentioned Black Swan, and I, I think Black Swan uh, was uh, the diagnosis uh, of, of these kinds of uh, uh, phenomena. But Anti-Fragile is his book, his later book, that really talks about the cure, uh, or at least the remedy, maybe cure is too strong of a word, but at least remedy for some of the uh, these black swan events. And, and he talks about an anti-fragile that certain systems are resistant to these disruptions because they take, uh, they, they bring in a lot of information uh, and they, uh, uh, they, re they respond to it. Uh, and they don't make the same mistakes again because they are so uh, uh, information responsive. And, and he, he, he kind of draws it out uh, to different kinds of organizations. Like sometimes the reason big governments are the most fragile is that they don't take in a lot of information. Uh, uh, like volatility is, is a good thing because volatility means that you are taking in information, it's affecting you, uh, and then you need to respond to it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, sometimes the worst thing uh, is uh, like a very stable return on an investment. A very stable return on investment means that uh, it can have 
you know, negative skew and, and, and kind of fall out of bed with no warning. Uh, and, and I think that large corporations also, uh, you know, suffer from fragility and startups are quite anti-fragile. Uh, they are, you know, they surf the, they surf the, 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 the waves uh, pretty effectively. Uh, they pivot, they move, they take in every bit of information they can. Entrepreneurial endeavors are really about taking in information and having the courage to act on that information. Uh, and, and I think as a large corporate at Toyota, I think we have a lot to learn from startups. It's not just, hey, let's find out what the, the newest disruptive technology is. That's only the, the, the really the, the, the first question uh, and opportunity. The other opportunities are really understand how is the, the startup culture, corporate culture uh, organized to be anti-fragile? Uh, and then ultimately uh, to teach uh, the larger organization to become more anti-fragile. So when the next black swan event comes, uh, they have the tools to calibrate to that disruption. And in some sense, if corporate venture capital is done right as part of a larger corporate development organization, you know, it may be naive, but I hope to bring, our team hopes to bring uh, a level of uh, anti-fragility uh, into, into, into Toyota. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I actually like that you're turning into this direction, right? Because ultimately it's, you know, it's about velocity. So that, or that is an important factor. So, and you're, you're t you know, you're mentioning now, um, you know, kind of, teaching or kind of showing the corporate in regards to how to be anti-fragile. And, you know, I want to direct this conversation kind of into the, you know, different tools that uh, a corporate ultimately has at hand in order to, you know, learn and to kind of adapt, you know, things that may, you know, set them up more um, or being more anti-fragile. So let's say mm -hmm. if, if we take, you know, um, we talk about innovation, right? So there's there's multiple tools that you can, as a corporate, really let's say play in. And over the years, there has there has been, you know, every major corporate, every Fortune 100 company, every Fortune 500 company has has a couple of these tools, right? Either that be a venture fund, or that be you know independent uh, innovation units within the corporate uh, accelerators, incubators, you name it, right? Um, and then there's you know there's even uh, the possibility for you know, for a corporate venture building, right? So a, a corporate that that, um, that sets up a unit that is focusing on, you know, kind of using the entry advantage to build up ventures. So there's a different types of things. And um, how would you perceive or, or how have you kind of observed these different tools and the, these different, well, I think tool is already the best, the best word to use here in regards and in, in corporate environments and, and, you know, of positive and negative examples. And what is your kind of opinion on these? Yeah, uh, great question. I, I think that, I, as I said at the top of the, the, the talk, uh, my background is electrical, electrical engineering, systems engineering. And uh, the first question any, any systems engineer uh, asks is, what kind of system am I, am I dealing with? Uh, is it a skateboard or is it a battleship, <laughs> right? If I hit it with a hammer, uh, does it move really quickly? You know, does it, you know, do flips like a like a, uh, like a skateboard or you know, does it barely move like a battleship? Um, and I think large corporations are, you know, they're big, they're like battleships, they, they move slowly. And so you have to calibrate your tool to the job. And, and I think that um, if you look at many of these corporate tools they are not calibrated to the job. Um, for example, anything that is just a, 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 a impulse to the corporation uh, is not gonna work. So I haven't been, uh, you know, a fan of, of uh, sort of uh, accelerators or, uh, you know, these very finite time boxed uh, efforts because I think uh, they don't have enough time to seep in uh, and, and do the work uh, within the corporation. You're not, you're not affecting the rudder of the ship. Uh, 
you're, you might be hitting it with, uh, with a hammer uh, at the bow, but you're not going to move it. And so uh, this is, you know, not to switch metaphors on you, but, you know, uh, if you think about like charging an inductor, it needs a lot of current, it needs constant current to actually uh, have any effect. And so I, I think that uh, uh, any of these tools must be consistently applied uh, in order to really have an effect, to, uh, to move uh, the, the minds uh, and the experiences of uh, not just the, the executives of the corporation, but also the rank and file, right? Uh, the, the managers and, and, and line workers uh, of the organization, right? They're all on the team and they have to understand how this works and why it works. And it takes a long time. And so that's why I think, I think corporate venture capital is a good tool. Yeah, sure, you get you know, early disruption intelligence uh, and ideally you, know, you, you get a head start on, on seeing the capabilities that are being introduced into the market that might be disruptive. Uh, but I think the, the thing that excites me the most often is, is calibrating the corporate culture uh, to the startup culture. Uh, and I think that takes a long time. And the fact that, you know, every quarter there's a, you know, some, a, a batch of new companies that we've invested in that we go uh, introduce to uh, the folks around Toyota. Our, as I mentioned, our, our portfolio support team introduces those companies to work with uh, relevant business units. That changes the idea of what a startup is, what disruption looks like, what Anti, an anti-fragile corporate culture looks like. And I think that is a much more effective tool because day over day, week over week, quarter over quarter, year over year, you see it work and you see it not work. And just like, you know, we're an AI fund, right? So whenever you're, you're training uh, a machine learning uh, network, you got to give it positive exam examples and negative examples. And we've been very upfront that many startups fail and we will learn what not to do by watching startups fail uh, because they invariably will. Uh, the converse of course, is we're going to see positive examples and we will profit from those positive examples uh, uh, either by finding great partners or at the very least uh, uh, profiting as shareholders. So, we get to bring these positive and negative examples right into the corporation. We give the corporation a front row seat to the disruptive innovation. Uh, and I think, that's, uh, I think that's the ultimate value of, of uh, any corporate venture capital effort. Uh, early stage, it's gonna be a little bit more raw, a little bit more uh, 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 fast, uh, as you move to growth stage, like we uh, Toyota announced Woven Capital, an $800 million fund that's focused on uh, uh, growth stage uh, investments. And, you know, that then it's a little, you know, the companies are much more mature. Uh, but it's really, it really helps Toyota understand where the disruption is coming from and what we can learn from it. Yeah, I think, I think you mentioned a good point in regards to how, you know, how can you actually impact you know um, and ultimately when you talk about a corporate it's, it's on scale right or the question is does it need to be on scale right because as you said right over 300,000 employees to really you know impact the mindset in regards to that so um because ultimately you know you can you can it's, it's not about the technology right it's it's not about the tools that you use. It's it's about the mindset. It's about the comfort zone of people, comfort zones of people, and it's about basically you know, with size comes, you know, comes also a different type of speed that you are able to pursue, right? Um, yes, I. And 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 that and I guess you know that is a big question, and there has been you know ooh, many 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 studies, right? And it starts with you know. With uh, Christensen's uh, innovation dilemma and whatsoever, mm -hmm. right? And the mm -hmm. question, however, is how, like, is there a positive example where, you know, on scale, you know, this 
innovative mindset, you know, because if it's, it's not about the technology, it's really about the mindset of the people to, you know, to, to build great things continuously, you know, over time, not just like, you know, not, and not get trapped and basically, you know, you build something and then, you know, there's, you, you, you try to hit scale and then there's like a, there's a specific process and you have your day-to-day -day business, your day-to-day -day life. And, you know, and you build up a comfort zone in that. And that's why, and, and the human nature kind of, you know, being, being human, right. You don't like to leave comfort zones. So, and, and I think the discussion involves a lot around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And success uh, is kind of as much of a blessing. It's also a curse because success often, and this is, I think, uh, Clay Christensen's point that uh, you, you've succeeded, uh, but what, uh, but does the complacency and just sticking to your knitting and continuing to win in your market uh, distract you uh, or placate you from finding the next market, uh, the next opportunity? Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the challenge. And, and also the time constant does change, right? So when you're successful, you build a culture that's focused quarter to quarter. The time constant is a quarter. Uh, as opposed to uh, an early stage venture where the time constant is, is annual or biannual, right? You know, one or two years. Yeah. And so you've built this whole company that's focused on next quarter, next quarter, next quarter. And then you say, well, I'm going to start this thing and it's going to take years for it to play out. Now, Toyota has been really patient on many endeavors, uh, you know, hybrid drive, uh, fuel cells, uh, you know, Toyota have, I think is very unique and entrepreneurial and patient in that regard. Uh, but many companies are, are not. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Prius was 20 years in the making uh, before it became a huge success. Uh, and so, uh, I think that's incredibly, uh, uh, illustrative of what's possible. Uh, I think there's other companies uh, around the world that, uh, have also, uh, uh, experienced, uh, growth in, in new areas. Uh, you know, probably the best example is Amazon web services, right. Coming out of, uh, and, and Amazon generally, uh, being able to stay hungry and uh, impatient uh, to pursue uh, uh, new markets and, and new innovations. Uh, so I, I, think, I think it's possible. I think it's difficult and the odds are against you. Uh, but I always like to say, or you know, my dad taught me that, you know, courage is the willingness to play the game when the odds are against you. Uh, and that's what entrepreneurship is, the willingness to play when the odds are against you. And, and many corporates, they don't like to play games when the odds are against them. They look for markets where the odds are for them, but you know, either those opportunities don't exist or the return on the investment is very low because the risk is very low. You know, maybe, I mean, you've, you've, you've been, you know, pursuing, you know, corporate innovation projects for, for quite some time. And maybe, maybe, you know, from the top of your head, you know, do you have some, you know, positive examples in regards to, you know, because in, in a corporate environment, in a classical corporate environment, you know, the discussion that has been going on for the past 10 years or in the last decade, more or less after, you know, every consultancy company has, uh, has told <laughs> leadership that uh, they're, um, they're, uh, there's the, the fear of disruption from, from tech companies. Uh, <laughs> uh, what are some good examples for, um, you know, for corporates, really, let's say there's this discussion then about new business models, right? But do you have like from the top of your head, some good examples that you've seen in the course of the last years, maybe, you know, where you've seen a traditional company really, you know, actually executing on something that, that became, you know, actually a new business or, you know, a new venture or whatever, you know, really well, yeah. corporate context. Yeah. I mean, I just gave you a, a couple, you know, here at Toyota, right? So the, the I think those are, uh, I think important to, to note uh, and not dismiss them too quickly. Uh, there's, uh, uh, I, I think you're right. There's more, much more, many more negative examples. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I think that the ones that are more successful uh, uh, actually 
you know, an, another, and these are usually high tech because high tech tends to be uh, uh, more open to disruption, disruptive technologies. But Microsoft is, is a good example. You know, over the last few years, Microsoft is up 3x. Uh, and uh, although they didn't win search, uh, they're continuing to uh, execute uh, with their cloud offerings with LinkedIn, you know, key acquisitions. Uh, and I think Satya uh, uh, has done an amazing job uh, with Microsoft. Uh, and, and I think that has been the embracing of disruption uh, and, and recognizing that uh, the level of investment needs to be risk adjusted. If you're gonna write a big check, uh, uh, the risk has to be relatively low. And I think the weasel word there is relatively, uh, how much, uh, risk can the corporate corporation tolerate, and I think that's that comes from the top uh, and the top lieutenants of the company. Uh, their job is to allocate capital and to uh, risk adjust that capital allocation. So you know, Amazon's an obvious example. I think Microsoft's an important example, uh, uh, and you know, there's there's you know a few others scattered, mostly in tech that I'm aware of. Uh, but I, we all can list off the many negative examples, of course, uh, from Kodak to IBM, to Nokia, to GE, to RIM, to, you know, it goes on and on and on. Uh, so, uh, it, it's clearly the successes are the exception, not the rule. And, 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 but what, one thing that's, I think, an interesting observation is that, uh, in many cases that I've seen that where there is success, uh, the success comes from uh, cultural separation. Uh, so the innovation group, the, the new business, let's call it, not call it innovation, but the new group is separate from the old group. Uh, and, and I think that's important for the time constant reasons I gave earlier. Uh, they just need more time. Uh, I mean, Amazon Web Services was a decade in the making. Uh, mean, meanwhile, Amazon.com, the retailer, was humming uh, with great cash flow, not always great profits, but great, great cash flow. And uh, meanwhile, Amazon Web Services just kept, you know, chunking along, uh, building out this amazing platform that became the profit engine for Amazon. Uh, there was a separation there um, uh, so that uh, those that were focused on the next decade's profit engine uh, were distinctly separate from those uh, with the day-to-day the, the -day, uh, business uh, activities. So, and I think that's an important distinction. Uh, I, I think it's really hard and Christensen, you know, wrote, you know, volumes about it. It's hard to do it from inside because those folks are by definition focused on the business that got them there. They're, they're focused on milking the cow that, that, that they have. Not, not leaving that cow for a new cow. Uh, and I think that's an, an important distinction. Yeah, good one. Maybe kind of as a, you know, um, we're already um, kind of, you know, uh, running out of time here. Kind of as a closing note, um, I'd like to, you know, in, in, in the context of, uh, of the crazy lives that we're all in right now, um, I, th I think that's always kind of an interesting, interesting question to ask, um, you know, to, to, to people is um, from, from what we've seen, you know, and from, from everything that Corona has brought us and, and, you know, all the different, you know, impacts that it has on our lives and the economy, you know, whatever it is, and also kind of, you know, the long-term effects, you know, what is kind of your, what are some of the observations that you've made, which ultimately resulted in some sort of opinion or pr uh, prediction as well, you know, something that, because every kind of person has some, you know, some sort of, you know, thing they believe will happen or which will result ultimately from, from, from an event or from something, right? So what is that kind of for you? Because kind of, you know, going to the end of the year, um, you told me that you've, you still, you know, with Toyota Adventures, you've done also some, some good investments this year, but like, you know, personally, from your perspective, what do you think, like, what, what are we going in with next year? What, what are some of the things that you believe will kind of happen or result from this whole thing? Sure. So let, let me answer it in two parts. The first part is what did we see uh, during this year that that 
uh, confirmed a, a couple things for us. And, uh, and we talked a lot uh, about corporate venture capital and, and we were structured not to not, we're, we're not an off the balance sheet fund, right? We're, we're a funded uh, GPLP capital call kind of structure like an institutional VC. And we did it that way so that we could uh, survive a downturn uh, because corporate VCs often are, are uh, tagged as tourists, venture capital tourists, that they're here during the good times, they leave during the bad times. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think uh, that does not serve the startup customer of venture capital very well. And so we set this up so that we could uh, invest through the downturn, if it made sense, if prices were right and the companies were good. Uh, and I think that proved out this year. Now, we, we, we knew there was a downturn. We didn't think it would be a, a, a global pandem pandemic calamity like what we saw, uh, uh, one in a hundred year event, but, but we, we knew there would be a downturn. And so the, it confirmed some of our uh, decisions we made around structure that we were still able to, uh, to invest during this period. So that confirmed uh, some things for us this year. And we were, as I mentioned, we were able to, uh, to be active. Uh, the other thing that was help kind of is starting to come into focus is this idea that talent is evenly distributed, but capital is not. So the fact that we all have to live on Zoom uh, and no matter if, the, if you're around the corner or around the world, uh, uh, we're still gonna, talk to each other over this two-dimensional video screen. Uh, I think it's, it's opened many uh, venture capitalists to the idea that you're gonna do a deal without meeting people face-to-face. -face. And you know, the old saw from in venture capital is if I can't drive to the board meeting, I'm not investing. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of gone out the window. And, and so we've done, uh, and we're really pushing on that thesis that that there is talent all over the world. The problem is the capital isn't evenly distributed. And so we're really trying to make an effort to uh, invest, look more around the world and tap into these pools of talent uh, that are around the world. Uh, we did an investment in Bipi out of Barcelona. We did uh, investment in YPC, a robotic uh, uh, kitchen uh, robot, or yeah, kitchen robot out of Montreal this year. And so I think that was confirming. And I think as we look uh, to 2021, uh, I think you're gonna see some of these trends continue. Uh, uh, we'll still be tapping into capital or into talent pools uh, around the world, which is really exciting. And, uh, but I think the longer this goes on, the more this new normal becomes actually the new normal. And, uh, you're gonna see, as we talked about around supply chains, logistics, personally operated mobility, these uh, new behaviors uh, will cement uh, in, uh, in the minds of, of customers and markets. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, uh, you, can, you can argue that uh, certain industries, industries have been accelerated 10 years into the future uh, because of COVID. Uh, and I think that is, going to be true. Uh, in venture capital, you know, the, the, the thing that you hate to see a, a startup pitch you is this idea that they're going to change consumer behavior. A little startup has very little chance of changing consumer behavior, but a global pandemic can change consumer behavior. And with that change, consumer behavior becomes new opportunities, uh, new productivity gains, and therefore uh, better investment opportunities. Hey, Jim, that was great talking to you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for sharing um, many insights with us. It was great having you here. Hey, it was a lot of fun, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me.